Uh, if you are newer, newer to Element, there are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on all the communion tables. They look like this. On the inside, you get some notes. goes a little bit deeper as well as some questions to go deeper as well. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. It just says, like, Bible on it. Uh, and inside that, you click on Events. And you'll get sermon notes, questions, verses, announcements, all that goes along with today's message. Uh, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Why don't you stand with me reading God's Word? This is Acts chapter 5, verse 39, and it says, But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us what it means to be those who trust you and live on mission in your name how you've called us to live. And in that, you would gain great glory and your people would live in great joy because you have been so good as to partner yourself with your people in how you reach the world. So teach us to live in the goodness of who you are. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so up front, this is Acts week 16, and this is a bonus week. Normally what I do when I have message series that we're going through is I kind of lay it all out, what all the weeks are going to be like, and then as I start going through and writing them, sometimes I'm like, oh, I really want to talk about that, so an added week gets in there. This is one of those added weeks. So if it's really good, I should do it more often. If it's really bad, I should just stick to my plan, so... You, you can vote on that later, by the way. You can let me know. Uh, anyway, uh, I think this is important for us to cover. Uh, the book of Acts reminds us what we are called to as a people who worship Jesus. Uh, two weeks ago, we looked at the apostles' joy, even in the midst of them going to jail and their beatings. And I mentioned we'd come back and look at some of the history of this and one of the prominent Jewish figures at the time, this guy whose name was Gamaliel. Uh, Gamaliel is actually the apostle Paul's teacher when the apostle Paul was a Pharisee. So open your Bibles to the chap- uh, book of Acts, chapter... 5, verse 29, Acts 5, 29, where we start today is what we kind of talked about two weeks ago. Peter and the apostles, they're arrested for preaching about Jesus. They're standing before this group that's called the Sanhedrin. Uh, That is a Jewish ruling council. And this is what happens when Peter refuses to stop talking about Jesus. Acts 5, 29, that Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers uh, raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey Him. When they, and they are the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, so he reasons kind of like a diplomat, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men, for before these days Thudas rose up, claiming to be somebody. And a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. Now, I want to kind of explain this a little bit. That's why we're going back and recovering this again. Before and even after Jesus, there were a bunch of wannabe messiahs running around. Everyone had different thoughts about what the messiah was supposed to be, what he would do, what he, what he could do, but almost everybody universally agreed that when the messiah showed up, the one thing he would do was be powerful enough to overthrow Rome and bring Israel into freedom. And so Gamaliel mentions this guy. His name is Thudas. Uh, the Roman Jewish historian Josephus tells us Thudas called himself a Messiah, called himself a Christ. He was able to get a bunch of people to follow him and fight for him. He claimed that he could part the Jordan River. He claimed that he could knock down the walls of Jerusalem and eventually leads an insurgency against Rome. He ends up being captured by the Romans. They decapitate him in Jerusalem in front of the crowds. And his 
story ends. Wah, wah. Okay. Gamaliel continues, verse 37. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. So Judas the Galilean, this is another guy who said he was one of the messiahs. Think about how awkward that would be today, right? Judas Christ. Sounds like a great band, like Judas Christ. Whoa! Who are you going to see? Judas Christ. No? Okay. Fell flat last service too, by the way. So uh, he was also killed by Rome. Josephus is the one who lets you know about all of this. Uh, Judas the Galilean started a group known as the Zealots. The Zealots. They were a group who a lot like people today said, you know, God's our God and the government's evil. We got to get rid of Caesar and you should never pay taxes to Rome. Can you imagine people getting worked up over taxes? No, not at all, right? And so, you know, as soon as they stop paying taxes, they get a following. People start going after them. They believed that as they rose up against Rome, God was going to honor them and tear down Rome. But what eventually happened is he and his followers get captured by Rome, and they crucified 2,000 of them in a single day. Historians, wah, wah, wah. Okay? Everyone believed from the crowds to the religious leaders that the Messiah would be the one guy who could come, and he would beat Rome. He'd be the one who took them on and replaced Israel where they were supposed to be. But the only way that you do that is you have to fight them and you have to win. And the only way to do that is to not die. It's kind of like playing the lotto. How do you know if you're the guy? Well, you can't win if you don't play. So that's kind of it. And if you try and you don't do, do it, you get crucified. And the common thinking is, if you get killed by Rome, if you get crucified, you aren't the Messiah. There are, that we know of, 18 different wannabe messiahs running around in Jesus' day. They all died, every single one of them. And this is what Gamaliel is pointing out. Jesus was crucified. Jesus could not have really been the guy. So just relax. That's your conventional wisdom. So he says this. In the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. What do the apostles do? They go out and continue to speak in the name of Jesus. And at the end of verse 42, it says they taught that the Christ is Jesus. The apostles are Jews. What makes them think Jesus was crucified, so what makes them think that he actually was the Messiah? Because their whole change, their whole thinking has been changed. They realize Jesus' wasn't, job wasn't to come and defeat Rome, it was to defeat sin. It was to restore relationship between God and us again, to make us back into who we were meant to be. But Gamaliel is one of these guys who thinks, well, Jesus died, so he couldn't have been the guy. And he is hugely respected, so they listen to him. At the time of Jesus, there are two main teachers that people taught in the name of. The disciples are running around teaching in the name of Jesus. But most people taught in the name of either Hillel or Shammai. Now, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 23, and I will show you an interesting debate between Hillel and Shammai and and how these kind of things worked out. Uh, Jesus, as a rabbi... Uh, He is teaching some things, and he's going to teach just a little bit different than these two guys. Matthew 23, starting verse 25, we call these woes. Not like Keanu Reeves' woe, but these are woes. Uh, Matthew 23, verse 25, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Luke says greed and wickedness. Matthew is greed and self-indulgence. Either way, Jesus is not making friends. And if you've ever read a passage like this, you're probably like, I don't know what that means. I'm sure it's very spiritual, so I should just read it and be like, okay. Verse 26, you blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and plate, that the 
outside also may be clean. So Jesus steps into this. He takes a religious dispute of the day. And in Jesus' day, religious people would like to argue about little minute fine pieces of theology and split hairs over it. So unlike today. Okay? And essentially, Jesus comes in and he's taking sides. In Jesus' day, there were progressives and conservatives. Again, so unlike our day. And to understand what is happening, you've got to understand a little bit of the Jewish world. In Jewish life, everything is sacred. And so you wouldn't say, like we do, oh, how's your spiritual life going? Because it's just your life. It's, that's all that it is. There isn't a distinction between spiritual and anything else. And so all life is meant to be lived in the presence of God. All life is sacred. Even the breath that you breathe is meant to be a representation of God breathing into you. Now, in Western culture, we have all these different things. We've got your job, your work, your stuff, what you eat, what you wear, how you conduct business, your sexuality, and we separate all of these things. But to the Hebrews, you couldn't separate those things because you were one living soul. That's what you were. Everything was spiritual. In Deuteronomy 11, 18, and 19, it says, You shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontless between your eyes. You shall teach them to your children, talking of them when you are sitting in your house and when you are walking by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. In the normal flow of life, you're meant to be listening to God in everything. You're supposed to hear his presence in everything that you do. All life is sacred. And so Jesus takes a meal with the Pharisees to make a point because food is central to life. So a meal for a Jew is a place for you to tangibly encounter the goodness of God, to tangibly see what God is doing. Food is provided from the earth. The earth is provided by God. So he reminded that all life is sacred. So after some time, religious people started looking at the meal and saying, we got to approach this differently. We've got to approach this very respectful. We've got to honor it as much as possible. So there's all these traditions and customs that are laid down about how you would wash your hands and the prayers that you would say and the way you serve food and the way you prepare food and the way you ate food and the bowl and the cup and the dish. You've got to clean them because they're part of the meal. And so how you clean them got added to food is central to life and everything is sacred. Layer and layer of tradition got layered upon this meal before you ever got to eat any food. And the beauty is lost. And you hear about this and think how confusing it is for you, and you're not even the one living in that culture having to do all these things. So one group started to argue very passionately, if you just clean the outside of the cup and dish, well, it's clean. Kind of like your dishwasher, right? It doesn't really... You know, that kind of. Another group started to argue, oh, no, no, you've got to clean the inside and the outside both and do two distinct rituals while you do this. Before you get to the bread and the salad and the chips and the salsa, you've got to do all of these washing of this and the prayer about that and the ritual of this, which is nowhere found in the scriptures. And so Jesus goes to dine. One school, the Hillelites, said, hey, you've got to just clean the outside of the cup and dish. The other Shemelites said, no, no, you've got ritual and custom, this whole arcane system that lost itself in the explanation. And Jesus comes in, and he doesn't do either. He doesn't do either. And instead of defending himself, instead of trying to explain what happens, Jesus turns the table and says, you know what your problem is? Woe to you. Woe to you. You make all these efforts to clean the cup, and he makes the cup about their souls. He makes the cup about who they are. He says, but your cup is filled with greed and self-indulgence and wickedness. It's self-centered. He says, you have become obsessed with how you look on the outside so much so that you miss the point. How will you ever lead someone to the saving life of God? And what Jesus essentially does in this is he dismisses the two greatest teachers Israel thought they had. Hillel and Shammai. This is a very big deal. It's also one of the reasons why the religious leaders wanted to kill him. 
Now, Hillel is always considered one of the greatest teachers Israel had. If you look through a lot of Hillel's writings, Jesus agrees with Hillel about 90% of the time. And Hillel is so influential, it is believed that all rules of biblical interpretation for Jews after him were based upon his style. Uh, He had this saying, That which is hateful to you, do not do to your fellow. Now, he dies in 10 AD. This is after the birth of Jesus. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and the Sadducees and the scribes who all keep hammering the apostles, they are teaching in the name of Hillel. He influences all that they do. The apostles are teaching in the name of Jesus. And so there is conflict. Jesus even takes Hillel's greatest phrase and turns it from a negative into a positive. He turns Hillel's negative, that which is hateful to you, do not do to your fellow, and he makes it into a positive when he says in Matthew 7, 12, whatever you wish others to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Now, there's a lot here, but Gamaliel is Hillel's grandson. And so when he speaks, they feel like they're listening to Hillel. He is respected. He is venerated. This is why he probably finds his place in the book of Acts. His second son, Abibo, I know, don't name your kid that, in, you know, whatever. Anyway, he converted to Christianity. He's venerated as a saint in the early church. But these guys in the council, they love Gamaliel. He is respected. He is one of the few Pharisees on that ruling council. But for me, Gamaliel kind of leaves me kind of in the middle. He's, he's a lot like us. I like him, but he frustrates me because he doesn't really go far enough. His speech in Acts 5, if it's from God, you can't stop it because you can't stop God. And if it's not, it'll go to nothing. I think he's trying to be helpful. I mean, he got the apostles beaten and not killed, and that's really nice. But he doesn't really take a stand for anything except the status quo. He says, let's just leave it the way that it is. And that's not really a theology that we should emulate. And you've got to understand, the apostles, they're on a roll. They're successful in ministry. They're popular with the people by teaching in the name of Jesus. People were responding to the news of Jesus and coming to believe. There are signs and wonders that are amazing. And the rulers of the Jews, they're threatened by this. They're jealous of this. The authorities have the apostles thrown into jail. The Sanhedrin are ready to kill them, especially when Peter says, we're not going to stop teaching in the name of Jesus. And that's when Gamaliel has the apostles removed and says, we've seen this before. We'll probably see it again. When it's from man, it fails. When it's from God, it is unstoppable. And the rulers are so impressed that they brought the apostles in, they beat them and sent them out to stop teaching about Jesus, and they still teach about Jesus. And Gamaliel's theology isn't necessarily bad, okay? For if this plan is undertaking as a man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. It points to God's divine providence, that we don't always know what God is doing, and he's in control, but it never takes a stand. Sometimes you have to take a stand if you're ever to live on mission with Jesus. The apostles, they took a stand. We are not going to stop talking about Jesus. Jesus took a stand. This is how life is meant to be lived. This is a true understanding of the Scripture. Uh, Richard Mao said this about Gamaliel. He says, he left too much in the realm of mystery. In the, in the Sanhedrin, where he makes this speech, you have two groups. You have the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who are both people who live the scriptures out, but they see them differently. The Sadducees wanted everybody to live the written law. The Pharisees, and they get a bum rap a lot, I know, but they held to what's called an oral interpretation of the scriptures. They wanted the, the law to be more understandable, more livable, especially to foreigners who came into the nation who wouldn't understand it all or know how to live it all. And when you hear the word law, that could be the entire Old Testament. It could just be the 613 laws that are in, you know, in the Torah. It could mean the entire Torah, the five books of Moses, because Torah translates as law or commands or more simply like the way. And so these, these five books of Moses outline for the Jews how to live in God's world, God's way. 
And so in the, in the Torah, you find these 613 laws, and they're broken into three categories. You have what's called the ceremonial laws. This is all about the temple, the priesthood, the sacrificial system. This was all taken care of in Jesus. Okay? I mean, Jesus is our temple. He is our priest. He is our sacrifice. All taken care of. If you want to see how that's fulfilled in Jesus, read the book of Hebrews. It's all about that. Then you have civil laws. God's people didn't have a king. The king was God. So God said, this is what people are going to look like when they live in my country. And so, you know, different things about how you grow seed and the clothes that you wear and how you grow your beard. Uh, And then you have moral laws, which are like the Ten Commandments, which are don't kill anyone, don't steal anything, don't lie, don't listen to boy bands, things like that. I, I kind of made fun of that, and someone goes, hey, you guys are a boy band this morning. And I'm like, yeah, okay, whatever. Um, don't gossip, you know, don't worship false gods. 613 of those laws. I mean, don't raise your hands, but have you ever done this as a Christian? You're like, I'm going to be really spiritual. I'm going to read my entire Bible. I want to go this. And so you're like, I'm going to read it. And you sit down, you open Genesis, and you're like, got it. Okay, good. You go to Exodus, and you're like, yeah, got it. But I hit chapter 20, and I just kind of got lost after chapter 20. Then you hit Leviticus. You get the first chapter. It's like, I'm done. Okay, so then you, then you skip over to Numbers, and it just gets worse. And then you hit Deuteronomy. You're totally confused. Cut the goat's head off. Don't scatter two types of seed. Don't wear collie pot and blend. Uh, shrimp is evil. If you're going to poop, dig a hole. You're like, I don't know what to do with all this stuff. Again, don't raise your hands, hands but that ever happened to you? Like, oh, and you just kind of get confused. Now, some people want to go and take the whole law and apply it to today. What we call that is moralism. Some people come in and they want to cut bits and pieces out of the Bible. You also can't do that because it all goes together into a whole what God called his people to be. Now, the Sadducees want everybody to live it all, letter for letter. The Pharisees recognized that certain things were only for Israel, like these civil laws and the ceremonial laws were taken care of in Jesus. You know, this, but they're like certain things are only for certain people. And so the oral law is about following God from the heart. Jesus taught mostly from the oral law. But this sort of thing still takes place today in what we call the evangelical community. Because really, like Hillel and Shammai, there's only really two sides, it seems like, today. One side says it's not our job to change the world. The world's a mess. It's just going downhill. It's a sinking ship. Uh, someone said to me uh, last week, they said it's like, the, it's, like the ti- it's like rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. It's going to go down anyway. Why do we even, you know? But this happens as people start doing church like bomb shelter. You start trying to get people just like you, who agree just with you, who vote just like you, and you all kind of hang out together and don't anybody else in. That's a horrible way to do church. You have the other side that says, well, we should just impose the Bible's demands on everyone, and that means any little conviction I have, well, then you've got to have it too. Like, God convicts me, well, we should just make those laws. And it seems like that is how the church for a very long time functioned. It only gave those two options. Those two options are the options Gamaliel gives. Legalism or fatalism? You withdraw from the world like monks, or you try to take over and impose your will. And what we don't seem to understand is that throughout the scriptures, God has always called us to a different way, a third way, his way. You don't withdraw. You don't always fight, though sometimes you need to. But you do what you can to show forth the will of God in tangible ways. We do the things that God has called us to do. Open your Bibles to Jeremiah 29. God is very practical in Jeremiah 29. God's people here are in a pagan city. They're captured. They're in exile. They're wondering how they are supposed to live. They're in a culture that doesn't believe anything they believe, that is always pushing up against them. It's very confusing for them. They don't have a temple. they got bad rulers, kind of like Congress. You know, the, all the prophets that show up are speaking lies, and so God sends his real prophet Jeremiah to speak to them. I think it's good for us to hear as well. Jeremiah 29, starting in verse 4, says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, that's the God who rules everything, to the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. 
the first thing God says is, I sent you there. You are where you are because I sent you there. Wherever you are, you are called to be a missionary by God to that place where you are. If you call yourself a Christian, you are a missionary. And the great myth today is that missions is those people who go over there and, and talk to those people who live in huts and eat bugs, the places we never want to go, so we give them money, so, so they go. And, and missions is part of that, but a missionary is also you, sent to Santa Maria, California. Well, we want to reach the nations of the earth. Great. Reach Santa Maria as well. The people in Babylon were sent there by God. Now, again, don't raise your hands, but how many of you were not born in Santa Maria? Or maybe your parents weren't born in Santa Maria. Maybe they came here for work or to live, whatever it is, but it's not your home. You are still called to be a missionary here. This is Babylon. Bible humor, I know, it's not great times. Okay, Acts 17 uh, reminds us that God determines where we live. He determines where we live. Why? So we would meet Jesus and invite other people to meet Jesus as well. Verse 5, it says, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce. What that means is you invest in the city. You don't just use it, you give to it. You build houses, you settle in, you plant gardens. In a city, people are going to come and go. And God may call some of you to leave, but while you are here, you invest and you become a great blessing to the city. Other people live here their entire lives. God is calling both to the city where you live. Verse 6, take wives and have sons and daughters. That means make babies. It's fun. We recommend it for all of you. Get married first. Then uh, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Part of living on mission is that we live in families like God calls us to and we bless the people around us. Gender, sexuality, marriage, parenting, family, it all goes together. Young men in our day, they want to live with a girl but not marry them because it's responsibility. And young guys hate responsibility like a cat hates water. You know, the majority of Christians are female. Just kind of shows they're more smart than the dudes right right there. But but the people who tend not to care and listen and give are the men. Statistically, guys in their 20s are least likely to attend a church. They run from masculinity and family and maturity and responsibility. The ones who cause the most problems in societies are the young men. They fill up jails, use women. Their mommies have to look after them. Then their girlfriends look after them, and they sleep with their girlfriend with no intention of marrying them. When their girlfriends become pregnant, they push for abortion, and they kill their own kids. If you are a young guy, you got to take your responsibilities seriously. You need to find your pants and get a job and read your Bible and stay out of trouble and be a benefit to the world around you. If you are a father and you have a daughter, it, your goal for your daughter is not to, be, to make tons of money so she can pursue some loser and take care of him. That should be your goal for your son without the loser part, by the way, okay? You teach your kids the joy of working hard and the joy of worshiping Jesus and the joy of living in community with other believers, the joy of living on mission. If you have a daughter you love and you nurture them, it would be an example of the man that they should marry one day. And the last thing you should do is ever let some knucklehead pull up outside of your house and honk the horn and make her come out. If that ever happens and you're a dad, you walk out the door. Yeah, you stay right here, honey, and you go walking out the door. And you sit in that car and go, we're going to have a talk, Okay. My, you are not UPS, and my daughter is not a package, okay? You're going to come in the house, and you're going to say, Hi, how's it going, Mr. Denton? You know, is Grace home? That'll be like 20 years from now, right? Yeah, yeah okay. And then you like it, and let them go. It's my soapbox. We, we got to, I mean, guys, we got to be different. Not weird, but we got to be different, because we are here for God's glory, to be good 
light for where we are in our society today. And we live this way not because we are better than other people, but because God has been good to us, and God has redeemed us, and God has changed us, so we live on mission with Him. This is an issue of legacy. What comes after us? That's a lifestyle of mission. Verse 7, but seek the welfare. That's the word shalom, uh, God's peace of the city. I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. That means you serve the common good. You don't do what's just good for you. You do what's good for everyone. You think of ways to do good for the whole city. If schools are terrible, Christians should be volunteering in those schools. If kids can't read, start to tutor. If, like, like in our city, we, we have one of the highest rates in the nation of STDs. And so we have a lot of people who are involved with CareNet in town and help these young girls. And so be involved in something like that. Make a difference. How can we make a difference in the city where we are? God says you pray for the city because in doing that, it will change your heart. And you also have to have a heart for the city like God does. Because it's not just God changed the city. God's going to say, yeah, that's why I sent you there. That's why you are there. Make a difference. Verse 8, for thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. This means in a city you've got to be aware of false teaching that's out there. And today, the greatest false teaching that's out there is all a misinterpretation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. People tell you that Jesus is there to give you all you want and to bless you and make you happy. No, this is the gospel. We are by, by nature and choice sinners. And what I mean by that is we do not do the things we're supposed to do. Those are called sins of omission. We do do the things we're not supposed to do. Those are called sins of commission. And sins include your words and your deeds and your motive. It all counts. And God is holy and God is righteous and God is good. And God cannot and will not bless sin, and sin cannot be in his presence. And this has led to a great broken relationship between us and each other and us and God. And we cannot reconcile this ourselves. But the gospel means the good news. Why is it good news? Because God comes, and God reconciles us to him. Jesus comes as our Christ, as our Messiah, not to defeat Congress and not to defeat Rome, but to defeat our sin so that we can have restored relationship with God. Again, Jesus comes as a man, as a missionary to us, to the earth. He goes to the cross. He substitutes himself in our place. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Our hope is Jesus. Our righteousness, our salvation, our example, our eternity, our joy is in Jesus. And when we live on mission with him, we seek the peace of the larger city because God has given us his peace. If you look at today and in the book of Acts, you know, we're in the same spot. I mean, what does it mean to serve God while we don't have control? What does it mean that we're not going to take over? It means trusting God and seeking the welfare of the city where God has called us to live on mission with and for him. I call Gamaliel's response pious agnosticism. You're like, I don't even know what either of those words mean. Okay, well, pious is like, oh, God's in charge. Oh, and, and, and that's okay, you know, but he's also agnostic and like, I don't know what God's doing. Let's just do our own thing and not really rock the boat. It is not bad to be pious, okay? It is not bad to, to realize there are some things we don't know. But there are clearly certain things that God has told us that we do know. Jesus has rescued. Jesus has redeemed. He has sought us down. He has loved his wayward children. These are the things that we do know. 
In Micah 6.8, it says, He has told you, which is the word shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. That means that we have a people who have been first loved by God, love in such a way that we don't get to sit back. We go out and live justice and live in kindness and walk humbly with God. We seek God's peace for the cities that we find ourselves in where God has placed us. We obey what God's revealed to us, just like the apostles, and we continue to preach in the name of Jesus by our actions and our words. We don't live like Gamaliel. We live like the apostles. We live like Jesus, and we teach in Jesus' name. This is how you begin to live on a mission. It's not trying to learn more and more and more, although it's not bad to learn. It's living out the things you already know. It's like you know, we talked about a couple weeks ago. Sometimes people just want to be in a Bible study seven nights a week, and that's all they want to do. What good does it do you if you don't live it out? We are called to live out the things that God has shown us on mission in the world around us so the entire world becomes blessed because God calls us to be his hands and feet to the entire world. This is one of the reasons we talk about communion every single week. Communion is where you take that cracker and you break it like Jesus' body was broken for us. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice. reminds us of his blood that was shed for you and me to wash away the sin of what separated us from God and us from each other. That in this, we have been given redemption so we can go out and live on mission with God in this world. That the entire world could be blessed because of what God has done. The band's going to come up. And as they do, when you invite you guys to take communion, there'll be some deacons and elders in the back. And if you guys need prayer, they'd love to pray with you. I mean, maybe you're somebody who, who only sees things as like fatalism or what's... I'm going to fall praying, whatever it is, nothing's ever going to get better. Or you see it as, I just need to run to the hills and and hide away. Maybe those are the only two options you ever saw. We'd like to pray with you about understanding the third option. Living and being a blessing like God calls us to be. And if you would like prayer, it'll be back there. Uh, There's offering boxes on the sidewall in the back, and we give because God gave so much to us. Giving is part of our worship. We do not pass a plate. It's a response to what God has done. Uh, We believe that, that giving is also part of living on mission. Uh, There's food and stuff in the back. We invite you to grab something to eat. Uh, Not too much because you want to be able to go to the newcomer party if you're new and eat really good cookies. I don't even know what's back there today. I think someone brought, like, fruit. Way to go. (laughs) Grab something to eat. Meet some other people. Maybe invite somebody to lunch or or somebody to dinner someday so we can sit down and maybe ask some of the questions that are are in the sermon notes. I mean, try and go a little bit deeper into this. You know, where are the places in our world that it would just be easier to run away from? And not ever deal with. Where are the places today that we would rather just go in and kind of impose our will? I mean, if you've seen the presidential race, yeah, okay. You know, what do you do in the midst of that? You continue to love Jesus because he is over all and you become a blessing. No matter where we are, no matter what's happening, we are called to simply step in and be a blessing. And sometimes that means that we take a stand because we're teaching about Jesus. I mean, for the longest time, people were like, you know, if you, you know, preach about Jesus and if you have to, use words. Because before, people would just say it all the time and never do anything. It's kind of switching today, and now people do a lot of stuff, but they never talk about Jesus. It's got to be both. It's got to be both. We're hands and feet, but we also speak out and teach and love and live in the name of Jesus. God has called us to be a people who live on mission. Live on mission with and for him. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that you would teach us. 
how to be a people who are your hands and feet to this world, who go to the places you send us to, who honor you and live for you in those places that we are. Father, sometimes it seems like it is so easy for us to want to run away and let somebody else do it. But teach us to understand when you bring a need to our mind that we see that it's there for a reason. And you've called us to make a difference. And I ask that you would teach us to see the necessity of this at our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in our families. And that we would truly begin to live the good news of your reconciliation to us in all things. That we would live in your name. That we would be your ambassadors to this world. That our lives would be so full of joy and hope. That even people who hate you or doubt you would have to take notice. Because of what you are doing in your kids' lives. Teach us to honor you by how we live in your name as your hands and feet. We ask this in your son's gracious and good name. Amen.